This episode was made possible by ExpressVPN. Start browsing the web securely with three months free by going to expressvpn.com MMI. On this episode of Meet My Inspiration, I talked to Vice News senior producer and correspondent Ben Anderson. Ben Anderson was once described by Vice News co-founder Shane Smith as a fucking savage, meant to be a compliment. He's an Emmy-nominated journalist, author, and filmmaker. He's a senior producer and correspondent for Vice on HBO. He's been covering foreign conflict for almost 20 years, has made over 70 documentaries during that time, and authored two books, No Worse Enemy and The Interpreters. He's a skilled storyteller who boldly goes where most journalists will not, resulting in very compelling reporting. And now, please welcome Ben Anderson. Okay. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining me on Meet My Inspiration. Uh, to begin, could you please briefly describe what you do? Uh, I'm a journalist, <clears throat> uh, mostly a documentary maker, um, but a writer as well. I've written a book and an ebook. And I've done a few other stories here and there over the last 22 years, but I mostly cover foreign conflict um, and the results of, of conflict as well. You know, I try, I try not to just do men shooting things, but actually the impact of, of conflict as well. Yes. Um, well, you're a journalist. So at what point did you first become interested in journalism or filmmaking? I mean, it's, it's really the only thing I've ever, ever wanted to do. When I was about 17, 18 years old, I sort of discovered um, foreign journalism, uh, war correspondence, um, and kind of discovered the rest of the world as well. You know, my my um, my household wasn't wasn't particularly political, wasn't particularly outward looking, apart from the Falklands War, which you know the entire country was paying attention to. And as soon as I started reading about what was happening in in Congo and Eastern Timor and Israel, Palestine and Iraq, um, it was like a light bulb went off. And I, I, you know, first of all, I thought, why isn't everybody talking about this? Why isn't this on the front page of every newspaper every single day? Um, and, and, and B, it was also a sense that, you know, I saw a few other foreign correspondents and just, just for some reason thought I could, I could do that. Um, and it was, it was just a way of, of being useful um, and helping in some way. And I'd never, never had that sense before. I'd never considered a, a, a job before where I thought you might actually be able to, to help in some way. Now that was, that was obviously 28 years ago. So since then, my views of how much journalism actually helps have changed a great deal. But, but back then, I, I had the, I think, naive belief that if you show people what's going on in these countries, then something will happen. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later about the impact of, of what you do and what you have been doing. Um, but first, I'd like to know, who did you look up to as a role model uh, when you started out as a journalist? Um, there were a few writers that were kind of, I mean, I admired their writing, but I admired the way they lived more than anything else. You know, they just seemed to have adventurous, important lives. Um, George Orwell, very early on. Hunter S. Thompson, very early on as well. And actually with both of them, I read their, their journalism and their essays before I read their novels. And when I read their novels, I was, it was kind of a struggle to finish them because I thought they were kind of boring and just not as urgent as, as the journalism. You know, I loved the journalism um, far more than the novels. And also, you know, people think that immersive journalism, which is what, what, what people say I do, you know, when you just kind of dive into the deep end and, and try and figure out what's happening and 
and show it actually happening rather than talk about it happening. Um, you know, this, this isn't a new thing at all. Um, Hunter S. Thompson and George Orwell were, were always doing that. I mean, George, George Orwell volunteered to go and fight in, fight in the Spanish Civil War, took a bullet to the throat while he was doing it. <clears throat> it makes sense that those are your influences, uh, having watched so many of your reports. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a unique characteristic of many of your films and reports is how calm you seem to be in highly stressful or frightening situations. Uh, for example, you came under enemy fire in Afghanistan, um, and you just kind of calmly took a knee and kept on uh, talking to the camera. Do you think of yourself as a brave person? No, and I actually get uncomfortable when people do call me brave. Um, I'm kind of witnessing other people struggling with war or fighting wars. Um, I'm not having to do things and make decisions myself that might lead to someone else living or dying. Um, and actually, the it's it's. I mean. I guess that there is an element of bravery to get on the plane in the first place mm -hmm. or get in the Jeep or get in the truck and, and go to that place. Um, you know, that, that takes a bit of bravery. Once you're there, if this is what you've decided to dedicate yourself to, then your curiosity just, just takes over and that outweighs the, the, the fear you might have. Um, I should also say, just to be responsible, that, that in the last few years, um, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD quite a long time ago yeah. and that could explain the, the calmness. I was actually numb. I, you know, I, I'd been exposed to danger so many times um, that I was just, just numb to it. So it's, it's not like I thought if I run across this street, I know an ISIS sniper is going to take a shot at me and that's terrifying, but I'm going to do it anyway. I wasn't terrified. I didn't really take on board how dangerous lots of the things I was, I was doing was. And there's also a very, it might be an English thing, I don't know, but, but you know, because I'm, I'm there almost as a tourist, I'm there with a return ticket in my, in my pocket. Um, there's a lot of guilt about worrying about yourself too much. Because when you're in these countries, you know, the reason you're there is to show the life of the people who live there. And they've got no way out. Um, so for you to go there for, you know, I would sometimes go to a place for four or five weeks and, and worry about, I mean, I, I, I took it to an extreme, but worry about yourself and your own comfort and safety too much um, or even at all. I would feel guilty for that. So I wouldn't worry about my own safety whatsoever because, you know, when, when you're in these countries, you really are in, in the top 1%. You know, I know that if I get hurt, there are resources available to try and get me help. I know that I'm going to have access to, to water and food and shelter in the not too distant future. Um, most of the people who I'm surrounded by in those situations who aren't actually doing the fighting themselves don't, don't have any of those luxuries. That's true. Um, part of your early career centered around uh, multiple series you did for the BBC, including Holidays in the Danger Zone, uh, in which you traveled through Africa's notoriously dangerous West Coast. Uh, another series called Terror in Southeast Asia, and probably the biggest, I think, of these series was Holidays in the Axis of Evil, in which you reported from Iran, Iraq, North Korea, and a few other countries as well. You early on in your career were clearly drawn to traveling and reporting on what most people would consider to be rather dangerous places. Why do you think that was? Um, I mean, I think reading about those those countries and situations in the first place just made me think not of the the governments or regimes that that were being blamed for the situation in that country or what that country was doing, but the people that were living in that country, often under. That, that regime or dictatorship or suffering because of the war that was 
launched. And Holidays in the Axis of Evil was, was the one that launched Holidays in the Danger Zone and all the series that came afterwards. And we got into all six so-called evil countries on a tourist visa. And we filmed everything with a very small handheld camera. Um, and, you know, this sounds kind of like a, a cliche and a very simple thing to say, but I think what it showed was that even in countries that we're, we're encouraged to, to hate and mistrust and stereotype, Iran, North Korea, Iraq, um, you know, the, the, the normal people just really aren't that different from us. And actually, um, you know, the things we think that, that, that Iranians are thinking or Palestinians or Iraqis are thinking are, are, are very far from the truth. And, and if people could actually, I mean, most people won't travel to those countries, but maybe read a bit more about those countries, maybe watch a film or a documentary featuring those people, then, then there wouldn't be, be so much fear. And, and, and maybe that would make it, it more difficult to, to do things which cause huge amounts of suffering to those countries. Mm -hmm. Again, that feels like a slightly naive, idealistic belief now. I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> well, let's kind of follow up on that. Some of the places that you have traveled to that seem scary at first, um, as you kind of just alluded to, first turned out to be, uh, sorry, turned out to be far less frightening uh, once you were on the ground, once you were kind of interacting with the people, getting to know them. However, I have seen some of your reporting, for example, on the gang wars in El Salvador. Um, where you would be quite right to be afraid of the people that you were interacting with, I think. Um, have there been instances where you were truly in fear? Um, the El Salvador, I think it was El Salvador, it may have been Honduras, but there, there'd, been a, there'd been a massacre in a prison. The, prison, the prisoners had smuggled in weapons because they, they have their own wings of the prison. The, the two different gangs have their own completely separate wings to the rest of the prison population. And they're responsible for their own cooking, painting, maintenance. So they get bags of cement delivered into their wing of the prison. And they'd smuggled in, I think it was Uzis and hand grenades, and used them to launch an attack. And in response, the, the prison officers, who don't normally even enter that wing, had gone in there, locked people into their cells, and set them on fire and, and let prisoners burn to death. Oh my God. So we wanted to talk to prisoners about what that, you know, if that actually happened, what, you know, what, what had actually happened. So we got to the gate of this, this separate wing and you walk through kind of a long passageway and the, the guys in charge said, sure, you and your, your cameraman can come in, but, but no prison officers. And once you've gone that far, like you, you want to get the story. You, wanna, you, wanna, you, know, you, can't, you can't say no after all that effort and travel. So we went in and suddenly you're walking down this, this, this pathway with kind of, I mean, it felt like it was out of a movie, you know, with, with fences and barbed wire around you and, and people above you and to the side of you, staring at you, sizing you up. Um, many of them covered in tattoos. I mean, literally covered in tattoos. Many of them in there for life, for murder. So they have nothing to lose. Um, and that, that, that was one of the moments where you think, what on earth am I doing here? Like I'm, and you know, I was working for the BBC at the time and, and you like to think if you've got a big organization like the BBC behind you, there's some kind of red button on the table somewhere where you can get evacuated out of a situation. But of course, no such button exists. And, and you realize, I mean, the first time I realized this was the war in Liberia, where the average age of a fighter was probably 15, 16 years old. And we were with this one group of rebels called the Lerd, Lerd Rebels, Liberians United for Reconciliation and Democracy. And we were with a group of, of child soldiers. And, and uh, I just thought these are stone drunk kids probably traumatized through what they've seen and been forced to do um and we are completely on our own here um there's nothing anybody you know we, we, i mean 
you hope that they wouldn't kill a foreigner and they that would you know create all kinds of problems for them but often that kind of rational thinking isn't 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 available in people because 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 they are like i say traumatized they're completely cut off from the rest of the world they may well be be drunk or drugged up um and then there are moments like in afghanistan where where you know i've been in firefights that have lasted hours and hours and and you've seen people around you get hit and killed um so there's definitely fear there but you also you have a job to do in those situations not only to survive not only to to you know be aware and and, and figure out where you're going to run to and where you're going to hide but also to film and, and record it and, and, and you know because this is this is why you went to these countries is to see moments like a firefight in iraq for example so, so sometimes, and again, this is not something I'd recommend to other people, but sometimes you can focus on your camera and, and you know, that you're focusing and zooming and getting nice shots. And it's a way of sort of distancing yourself slightly from the very crazy bad situation you're in. But I bet, again, I would say like most of the time, there are moments when you, you, you face a choice and you know, do you want to go into that wing of the prison or not? I mean, in Venezuela, we interviewed a, a major Coke dealer and he said, sure, I'll interview you, but you're going to have to be hooded. You're going to meet, 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 meet my guys in a basement car park. We're going to hood you, drive you around for two hours, and then they'll deliver you to me and you can ask five questions. And so sometimes there's, and it's literally less than a second where you think, should I be doing this? Is this, is this really a sensible thing to be doing? Is it really worth it? But straight away you think, no, I want to go. I want to, I want to go and see what I've, what, I've, what I've come to see. Can you think of an instance where you asked yourself that question and the answer was, no, this this is too crazy. I can't. You've always it hasn't, gone. hasn't happened. Hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. There was there was talk at one point of doing an embed with ISIS, um, and someone had done it. Someone who worked for Vice had done it, and they said they'd be willing to go in again and take a, a foreign correspondent. And um, oh, I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name now. Um, did a film for us called The Islamic State. Uh, met. Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Anyone can find it. Vice News, the Islamic State. He was in Raqqa for, for, for three weeks with, with, with the Islamic State because he knew them before they became the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. so, so there was talk about doing it, but I actually, and it never really, you know, became that serious. But I did, I did think my answer to that one might be no, just because I thought he's already done the embed. He's already shown what they are and what they want. So at this point, going in again would be kind of gratuitous and do I really want to give a platform to guys who are beheading journalists and taking young girls as sex slaves? Mm -hmm. So, so had it have, had it have gone down the road a bit further, I probably would have said no to that one, but not on on safety grounds. More just on, you know, I just don't think it could be justified to give them yet another platform. Right. Um, okay. So we you kind of alluded to this. Me, sorry, me, me, Median Hassan. Sorry, Median Hassan was the name of the. <laughs> sorry. I'm, my, my brain is uh, it's got like a 30 that was bothering delay. You. That was bothering you. you got <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to know, what, what is your purpose um, on reporting from war zones or other troubled regions of the world? You put yourself in so much danger. Um, why are you doing it? I mean, two things. Firstly, and by far the most important one, as I said earlier, I think it, it's the most important story in the world. Um, if 800,000 Uyghurs are being sent to concentration camps in China, um, you know, if, if hundreds of thousands of Congolese are, are, are dying in Eastern Congo, in a situation which we could, we could actually do a lot to help, if, if hospitals, schools, 
clinics, weddings, funerals are being bombed in, in Yemen with, with our bombs, American and British bombs. So we could literally stop that tomorrow by, by stopping the, the supply of, of, of those weapons. I, I think if you are a storyteller in any form, that is the most important story in the world. And, you know, I read the New Yorker and the Atlantic and I read these amazing profiles of, of chefs and architects and, and I love them and I'm fascinated by them. But for me, if I was covering that, knowing what's going on in some, some far corners of the world, it would just feel like the, 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 the less important story. If, if, if people are suffering on the scale that we know they are suffering. And if we are, I mean, you know, the word privilege is kind of being thrown around a lot now and it's becoming um, slightly meaningless. But if we're in the, in the privileged position of having money um, and access to all of this information, um, not, not sharing that information and not trying to get other people to, to be aware of what's happening feels almost, almost criminal. And it's, it, it gets harder the longer you do it because, I mean, especially now in the Trump era, it used to feel like 98% of American news was domestic. Um, and 2% was, was foreign. Right now, it feels like 99.9% .9 of American news is domestic and trying to get people to care about, even getting people to care about Iraq or Afghanistan where American troops are still operating and occasionally even dying. Um, I, I would have thought most Americans don't even know there are still American soldiers and Marines in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that's, that's the main reason. The secondary reason is, is a slightly selfish one. Um, I grew up in a in a fairly small town in England. Um, you know, I kind of looked at the the options available to me, and they weren't particularly exciting. I, rem I remember I used to walk home over this hill from school every day and just look at these rows and rows and rows of terrace houses, you know, with a little light on in each one. I just thought that's it. You're supposed to you're supposed to get a job that you dislike that you do Monday to Friday just so you can afford one of those little boxes and, and eat the same food and watch the same programs that everybody else is watching every night. It, it made me like, like boil with anger that that was, that was it. That was all there was. Um, and also, I, I, you know, I had, you know, my, my grandparents were dirt poor, fought in World War II, had nothing. My parents worked hard and, and you know, earned a little bit and, and kind of stepped, stepped up the ladder a couple, couple of notches. Um, so I was the first one really to have you know, the luxury of saying, well, no, you don't have to just do a job you hate for your entire life and go to the pub on a Friday night and get drunk and, and watch football all day on Saturday with a hangover. You know, you can actually do something, something more than that. Do you think that your, your reporting, do you think that your films and your stories, are they making an impact? Have you, have you noticed a direct impact? Or can you think of an example of one story that you've done where you directly made an impact on the events that you were reporting on? Um, I'm told that the three films I've done on Yemen um, had an impact in, in DC and, and helped get the, the, the both houses to vote against um, selling, continuing selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. But of course, Trump vetoed it anyway, so the weapons sales continued. Um, I, did a, I did a big podcast in the States about 18 months ago and talked about how little faith I have in the impact of journalism these days. I mean, occasionally one film or one story breaks out and gets shared by everybody. Most of the time, it, you know, they, they don't. And loads of people sent me messages saying, Ben, you really do have an impact. You've opened up my eyes. Um, people have written to me and said, you've made me want to be a writer or a photographer or, or focus my art on, on these subjects or, or whatever it is. And that's, that's great. But, but, but really the reason 
the impact you want to have or the impact I wanted to have when I started doing this was, was to help the people in the countries that I'm, I'm reporting on. Um, and it's, it's very difficult to feel like you're having much impact for them and helping them very much. And I've even been in a couple of situations. I mean, in, in the Gaza Strip and in, um, I believe it was Cambodia, um, in a malnutrition clinic, um, people have come up to me and said, you foreigners, you come here, you're, you're getting paid very well by your bosses. You take your pictures, you get your pat on the back and you leave and you don't help us whatsoever. Um, and I don't have much of a counter argument to that. Um, if I was them, I, I can see how they would, they would feel the same way. Um, and as a journalist, you're not supposed to help directly. You're not supposed to give anything to people you're filming with because obviously then you're kind of encouraging them to, you know, the next time a journalist turns up, they'll think, oh, I, I say whatever they want me to say and I'll get some money or food. Um, so you're not supposed to do that. I, I have, I have, if I've been somewhere where, I mean, I was in Burkina Faso recently where there are very few journalists working. And at the end of four days filming with a, with a, a village chief who was supporting hundreds of people who had fled the fighting. Um, when we'd, when we'd finished everything, we just went to a local shop and bought, I think it was seven big sacks of rice uh, and a few other bits and pieces and just quietly gave them to him. Um, so sometimes you, you just can't help yourself, but, but you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Well, you're only human. Um, <clears throat> can you think of someone from your life that has made a great impact on your career as a journalist? I mean, like a school teacher, family member, a fellow journalist, who, who do you think that has, has made a great impact on your career? Or met, someone, I, someone I, I know, no, or someone I know, or someone out, you know, that I've just read about. Maybe someone you know, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Hunter S. Thompson and George Orwell, but somebody from your life. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a teacher, um, a, a teacher called Andrew Andy Andy Wilson, Andrew Wilson at my school, and and I was I was a bit of a troubled kid. I was kind of an angry, restless kid, and at my school, you were either an academic or you were, you know, sporty. And I was kind of neither. Um, so there was nowhere really for me to fit in, but I had, had a lot of energy, but everyone saw that as a problem. And, you know, I was getting in trouble a lot of the time. Um, but this one teacher kind of, kind of saw something in me and, and, you know, just, just kind of encouraged me to read a couple of books here and there. Um, and he, he was the first one that really made me think, oh, oh you no, know, actually you, you might have something special here. Like the thing you have is not a problem. Hmm. You know, the thing you have is to be encouraged and, and you've got you've got an inquisitive mind and, and you should just just follow that wherever it goes. And he actually he ended up getting me to audition for a part in a play. And I remember thinking, like, I don't want to like I was, I was disgusted at the idea of doing a play and doing theatre. I, like, I thought I was like, you know, a little like a tough kid. Um, but I did it. I, I went for the audition because in his classes, we, we used to read books and we, he would give kids in the classroom parts to read. And I would really enjoy reading reading parts. Um, so I auditioned for this play and I got the part um, and we ended up, and the play was Equus. I don't know if you know Equus, but it's, it's the story of a, a therapist and a boy who kills horses because he becomes like sexually obsessed with horses. And the therapist ends up thinking, I'm supposed to cure this boy, but actually this boy knows more passion than I've ever known in my entire life. I sit in my office reading these books about ancient Greece and ancient Rome but this boy really lives, this boy is really alive. So it's this, he's debating with himself and, but the boy has to, has to get naked, has to beat himself with a coat hanger. Um, I mean, some sexual stuff. And, and I was, 
also kind of a shy kid. This was a school play? So I turned up, no, no, this was after I'd left school. I had no oh. idea what I wanted to do. I was going to go to university, but wanted to travel first. Um, I went to the audition and I read the part and I, I kind of almost like cried in the park because I was talking about this boy's admiration for, for, for horses. Um, and I got the part. And then I read the play and, and watched the film. The, the, the Richard Burton played the therapist in a film. It's a great, great film. And I saw all the things that I was expected to do. And I thought, there's no way I'm doing that. And there's no way I'm getting on, on stage in front of 200 people and, and doing that. And each audition I turned up to, fully intending to, to pull out. And I didn't have the guts to pull out. So I kept on going. And before I knew it, I was at the, the, the Edinburgh Festival um, and did this play for a week. And we did it in London. And, and it, it, got, it got really good reviews. But for me, it was just, it was great to overcome that that sort of shyness and do something I didn't think I could do, mm -hmm. but I had actually no interest in, in acting, but it just, I think it just showed me that something different from what was expected was, was, was possible. And then, you know, years later, he would still, we'd still talk about books. And it was just, it was just nice to have someone kind of acknowledge that, that, you know, you actually uh, had a mind that was, that was worth, worth engaging with rather than being just, you know, swatted down every five minutes, which well, is what I got from everybody else. It was kind of a turning point in your your young life at that stage. You know, you had no direction, nobody was encouraging you, and then this person came out and showed you that you know something that everybody told you was a negative is actually a positive, and he pointed you in a in a good direction. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And I should say that through reading the books, I also read Henry Rollins, you know, the singer from Black Flag. Yeah. And there's a book of his called One from None, which has a like a thirty page interview with him at the end. And in that interview, he mentions. Henry Miller, Frederick Nietzsche, John Coltrane, Charles Bukowski, Louis Ferdinand Celine, Miles Davis. And I went to the library and I got a stack of books and CDs out. Um, and you know, as I'm sure you know, like you read one great book and that leads to five more, which lead to five more, which, and that, that really lit a fuse under me. And from that, I was just off. And, and as you can see, I'm still yeah. trying to play catch up now because <laughs> there's still so many more books to read. And actually the Miles Davis, I got a really bad, 80s electric album oh yeah like the the cindy the early stuff, is better. stuff. I remember, yeah, yeah and i remember listening to that thinking this is the guy that everyone raves about and then i figured out that there was actually like three decades worth of amazing work before that um yeah. but no that that little pile of cds and books that also was was a, a real turning point That's and awesome. then you know when i read even like nietzsche and dostoevsky and people like that i just thought you know they were articulating feelings that i hadn't articulated for myself yet um, and I just thought there is someone out there in the world and most of them were dead, <laughs> but there are people out there in the world who, who, who think like I do. Um, and that, that was a, an absolute turbo boost. And a thanks to Henry Rollins, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you've openly discussed and you mentioned it earlier, um, suffering from PTSD, um, from all of your time in war zones and violent places around the world. I don't think I've ever heard of a journalist discussing this, but it makes total sense. Uh, you guys are in the trenches with bullets whizzing by you as well. You often see and experience just as much violence and death as the soldiers you are reporting on. Is PTSD something common amongst journalists or war correspondents and people reporting on violent conflicts? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're, you know, first of all, you have to say there are people who, who you know, there are, there are American TV anchors who report on these things from a great distance and just want to get the shot of them with the flak jacket on. And then there are the often younger, often freelance photographers and writers and others who, who really cover these wars. I mean, Syria has been, I, I, I've only been to Syria three times. 
um, but friends who have really covered Syria. And of course, you know, they've, they've gone to extraordinary lengths to, 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 to witness something happening. They've seen literally kids being killed in, in hospitals, in basements, for example, in Homs. Um, and they've come back after taking extraordinary risks, thinking these pictures are going to do something. The world is not going to let Assad get away with this. And of course, they've absolutely let him get away with it again and again and again. So I think, I think the experience of war itself is, it means that, that many correspondents who cover it absolutely have PTSD. Um, the fact that in Syria, for example, um, the, the, the work is, is, has done so little to, to stop the atrocities, I think compounds the, the, the PTSD. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think there's more awareness of it now than there was. I mean, when I started out, a lot of the older war reporters that I really looked up to, you could tell they were just drowning PTSD and in, in, in alcoholism. Um, that, that seemed very, very common. And, and, I, and I know now, 10 or 20 years later, a lot of them have, have come out and talked about it. I mean, Fer, Fergil Keane of the BBC, who did great stuff in Northern Ireland, in Rwanda, I mean, all over the place, Bosnia, um, has come out and said he's, he's got PTSD and needs to step back. And I think he, he certainly had problems with drinking. So, so I, 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 as soon as I was diagnosed, I, I, I mean, I barely, barely drink now, um, just because that, that, that makes it far, far worse, I think. Uh, could you talk a bit about how you are dealing with your PTSD? Maybe uh, you're talking with people, you're, I don't know, medicated, like what's, what's... I tried medication and, and hated it. I, I tried medication and, and it did nothing. So they doubled the dose and it did nothing. So they doubled the dose and I just, I just felt like a zombie. Mm. Um, you know, just, it just every, I mean, it, I have a problem with, with, with numbing anyway. The numbing I talked about earlier with danger yeah. also applies in your, in your life when you get back home. So things that are supposed to be pleasurable, you're numb to, uh, you know, friends, dinners, walks, you just, you just don't care, you're bored. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm still doing therapy now, once a week. Um, I tried MDMA therapy, which was, which was incredible. It wasn't enough to, to cure me as it has many veterans with, with PTSD. Mm. But it was an enormous help. I mean, it just allows you to, to think and talk about things and put things together in ways that I don't think I could have done without, without the MDMA. Um, I mean, there was, in, in the first MDMA session, I had kind of a, a, a two-part revelation in the same thought. And one was, without really making a conscious decision, I had slammed the door shut on the idea of a relationship, family, dog, house you know that that nice domestic pleasant life i just thought that's not for you you're not capable of that that's not a possibility in the same thought cycle i also thought but it's still possible for you to you to have that and enjoy it and be happy and satisfied with it and both things hit me at the same time and i, I don't think i ever would have had both thoughts without the mdma assisted therapy mm, that's wonderful that's good uh okay do you know who barry weiss is the journalist barry weiss I do. Okay, I thought you would. Um, so she recently resigned from the New York Times. Um, she was hired in an effort um, for the Times to broaden their ideological range of its opinion staff. Uh, her resignation was due to what she called a hostile work environment um, and bullying by her more liberal-leaning colleagues because she has more centrist views. Do you think this is symptomatic of a larger overall problem with the traditional news media, at least in the US? Um, I don't know enough about the bullying allegations. Um, if she was being 
bullied within the New York Times. And I think she was saying there were Slack channels within the New York Times dedicated yeah. to kind of, you know, talking ill of her. Then obviously that, that absolutely should not happen. At the same time, um, from what I know of Barry Wise, she's been very keen to cancel quite a few people in the past, especially mm -hmm. critics of Israel. Um, and even lump um, left-wing critics of Israel in with far-right extremists in the US who, who, you know, might want to shoot and kill um, Jews um, and have done. And, and I think comparing those two was, was a jump way too far. Mm -hmm. um, in general, though, it, it does feel now like a, a, a slight, I mean, I, I barely ever tweet because there is this feeling that just, just the, the wrong word in the wrong place you know, no matter what your intentions and your backgrounds and your two decades of work, it feels like the pylon, and Barry Weiss was a victim of the pylon very often. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like the pylon can just come so quickly and there are so many people desperately keen to pile on to anybody for almost any reason. Um, and also I think, I mean, I forget the exact stats, but it's something like one in 20 Americans have Twitter and one in seven of them tweet regularly or engage regularly on it so you know there's a danger in us really paying attention to a minority of a minority who we perhaps shouldn't be paying attention to you know five years ago they would not have had um the mouthpiece and now they do and i don't see anything too positive about that i mean i remember when when the internet was a relatively new thing that was going to be you know freedom of exchange all information will be free information without borders um, it feels like the opposite has happened. It feels like we've become stupider. And it feels like I'm hearing more ridiculous conspiracy theories now than I did before then. And, and also, you know, you'd have thought that, that, that the internet, Twitter, 24-hour news would lead to more news. And it seems to have led to, to less. And people are far less informed about, about, you know, I mean, basic facts of, of the world and history um, than they were before. And also, I don't think people are, are reading the things they're, they're sharing or, or watching the things they're sharing. It's so often I get sent things from the right and the left, you know, I'll watch this liberal get owned by whoever it was and you watch it and you think, did you actually watch this entire debate or did you read this article? Because it doesn't prove what you think it proves at all. Yeah. I think you've just read the, read the headline. And by the way, the same debate or article could have a completely different headline on Breitbart as it does on The Nation. Um, but they just read the headline and share it, and, and that's it. And that's 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 extremely dangerous. At, at the same time, I'm also I'm not aware of that many people that have actually been cancelled. Um, I mean, cancelled for sexual harassment or sexual assault in the Me Too era, sure. Cancelled for having unpopular opinions. I don't think there are there are a long list of examples of that happening. And actually, I see people with I think absurd opinions or outdated opinions who seem to be doing very well and getting paid very well and getting supported very well. That's a good point. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. So you live in New York City. Um, you've been there throughout the entire um, pandemic, right? It's the longest, I've, I think it's the longest I've ever been at home, yeah. Yeah, in one place, right? Um, so yeah. what's your experience been like um, from the beginning of it through to today? Um, I mean, it's been kind of maddening because, you know, straight away I go to, you know, th this is a historic crisis, undoubtedly. So straight away I compare it to other historic crises. And I think of my grandparents who had to endure the Blitz, for example, and, and rationing. 
um, you know, you think of, of the AIDS crisis where, where if you were um, gay in New York, you probably lost half or more of your friends and were told it was your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think of these other historic crises and, and what did we have to do to get through this one? We had to stay home and watch every great series on Netflix or HBO and, and you know, go to the supermarket and cook our meals. Like it, it really wasn't that hard to get through it. And certainly in America, I think they've, they've failed miserably to get through it because it became, you know, um, I mean, it, you get on a plane and you, you, you take your shoes off, you put on your seatbelt. You, it's, it's not a big deal, but suddenly the mask became, became this issue. And people were willing to like, walk to the supermarket without a mask, knowing they were going to get into a confrontation, wanting to get into a confrontation. Um, it's, it's, it's absurd to me, absolutely absurd. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's been, it's been boring. It's been frustrating. It's, it's, you know, I have read a lot of books, but it's hard to get the enthusiasm to spend, you know, eight or 10 hours reading books all day, every day. But, but in terms of just about every other international historical crisis, this one's been easy um, for, for, for the people who don't have it and for the people who haven't lost their jobs because of it. Um, yeah. That's another thing worth noting. I feel, I feel like the people who have lost their jobs because of it. I, I'm, it doesn't feel like most people get how bad that is and how serious that is. It doesn't feel like that's been part of the, the daily conversation, the daily reporting on, on, you know, I mean, you know, I forget the exact stat, but something like half of Americans have $400 put away for an emergency and that's it. Um, how are they getting on now? You know, there's, there's that, that, that should be forefront, um, you know, explaining what they're going through and, and, and how do we help them through it as well. And, and that, that has been largely absent, I think. Well, yeah, it's an, it's an economic catastrophe for most of the world, um, but especially for the U.S. because there's more cases there than anywhere else. Let's talk a little bit about how that um, is going to have an effect on the upcoming election. Um, so there's an upcoming uh, presidential election in the U.S. in November. So like we just discussed, the, the COVID-19 catastrophe is dividing and affecting the country um, tremendously. When you add the Black Lives Matter protests that are ongoing, affecting the country greatly, dividing the country, how do you think this is going to, let me rephrase that. How might this be, uh, how might this election be a tipping point for the country in one way or another, depending on how it, how it turns out? I mean, there, there are, I remember when Donald Trump said, John McCain is not a war hero. Um, you know, I, I like war heroes who didn't get captured. And I thought that was a tipping point. Um, yeah. There have been so many things that I thought would be tipping points that just seem to have no impact whatsoever. You know, I, I would like to say, if you, if you look at the graph, you know, mo- most countries in the world, the, 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 the cases went up and then down, and now they're kind of steady and trailing off. In the US, it's gone way back up again. Um, how that isn't on Trump, in everyone's eyes, I don't know. But I'm sure that in the build-up to the election, um, lots of people will absolutely not think that is that is Trump's fault. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, I, I read a statement from him today saying, "I don't like the masks, but let's give it a try. What do you have to lose? It might it might help." Um, it's taken him this long, and 157,000 deaths to say <clears throat> maybe you should wear a mask. Um, when he'd done so much to discourage people wearing masks in the past. How, how that alone isn't enough to mean he has zero chance of re-election, I don't know. But it's still 
eerily close. I mean, 538 have, have uh, Biden leading by nine points. Um, that's not a huge lead given all that's, that's been going on. So let's say, um, obviously you can't predict the future, but um, if Trump wins, um, does the chaos just continue you know, to, to go out of control? Um, or does it slow down? What do you, what do you think is going to happen if he does in fact win? Um, I think it absolutely continues. And I think, I mean, obviously my focus is on, on foreign policy. Um, I mean, America is, you know, I've, I've been here six years. America is incredibly tribal when it comes to voting. And I think mm -hmm. in the election, you can probably assume that 57 million people are going to vote for Republicans and Democrats, no matter what, no matter who the candidate is and no matter what they're doing. And they will always vote red or blue based on their, you know, their, their family's history of, of being red or blue. Um, it's just you know, who can get those extra six, seven million excited to come out and vote for them is, is going to be who wins or, or, or loses the election. In terms of the rest of the world, um, I mean, America's reputation is in tatters yeah. in the rest of the world. And you've got all kinds of, of benign players knowing they can do whatever they want and just run circles around him. Um, I mean, you know, the obvious first example is Putin. And, and we don't quite yet know exactly why, but he has absolutely given Putin everything he, he, he wants. Um, and it's, it's staggering to see. Well, let's, let's hope for the best. Um, ben, I think this is a good point to, to end our discussion. I want to thank you very much for joining me on Meet My Inspiration. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Ben for his time and for sharing his fascinating story with us. If you want to find out more about Ben, you can find a great collection of his travel photos on Instagram and keep up with him on Twitter, both at Ben John Anderson. Check out his films like Battle for Marja and This Is What Winning Looks Like. Also, his book, No Worse Enemy, is available on Amazon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like broadcasting to the world everything you do online. Here's how to protect yourself and get three months for free. Did you know that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. ExpressVPN works on all devices, phones, laptops, even routers, so that everyone who shares your Wi-Fi is protected too. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is super easy. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by TechRadar, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com MMI, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash MMI.